I have spent two years in a master's program for teaching Chinese as a second language, designed for native speakers and taught in Chinese. Here is what I learned from the experience. Hello and welcome to the Hacking Chinese podcast. In this week's episode, I'm going to continue telling the story of how I learned Chinese, and now we're up to the period 2012 to 2014, where I was enrolled in a master's program for teaching Chinese as a second language at National Taiwan Normal University. Before I go into more details, including what I learned from these two years, I'd like to mention that there is a vocabulary challenge for June, and it starts on June 10th and lasts until the end of the month, as usual. Scritter has been nice enough to sponsor this challenge, which means that there are some nice prizes available. And not only that, Scritter is free to use for new users during this challenge. So if you sign up using the code HCVocabChallenge, and to make sure this is easy to apply, there will be a link in the description of this episode, which also includes the code. And if you use that as a new user and you sign up for an account, you will be able to use Scritter for free for the duration of the challenge. And obviously, if you're listening to this in the future, it won't work. But you can still head over to challenges.hackingchinese.com to. See See what challenge is on when you are listening. That link will work for anyone who's new to Scritter, though, so it's not really a prize as such. But six people will also win three months of free Scritter, and this is applicable even if you are already using Scritter and even if you're already subscribed. For a chance to win this prize, you need to be active in the challenge, and that means that you should be active on hacking Chinese challenges, of course. But it also means being active in other ways, including social media. Be sure to ping me if you're active on social media, because otherwise I won't see it. I will then distribute the prizes randomly among the participants at the end of the challenge, but it's weighted so that people who are more active stand a better chance of winning. I should maybe clarify that you don't need to use Scritter in the challenge. You can study characters and vocabulary in any way you want, but the prizes are from Scritter, and that's why I'm talking about that. I will also participate in the challenge myself, so I hope to see you there. In case you want to know more about what Scritter is and how it can help you learn Chinese, I did publish an updated, in-depth review last week, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I also published an interview with Scritter's CEO Jake Gill last week on the podcast. That's episode 147. Okay, so I think that's enough about the vocab challenge. So let's turn to the main topic of this week's episode, which is the two years I spent in Taiwan between 2012 and 2014. Naturally, I didn't start learning Chinese by enrolling in a master's program for teaching Chinese. So, if you want to check out the earlier parts in this series, just check the link in the description, which contains an overview of the entire series. To summarize very briefly, I started learning Chinese in 2007 and spent one year studying full time in Sweden, then two years studying full time in Taiwan, and then two years where I studied some Chinese but was mainly busy with graduating from university and things like that. During that time, I needed a long-term goal, and the goal I set for myself was to prepare myself as if I were to enroll in a master's program for teaching Chinese as a second language. I chose this goal for two reasons. First, I was a language teacher already at this point, and so this was something I was interested in. I mean, the subject matter was something close to my heart, and I also seriously considered enrolling in such a program, so preparing for it would make sense. Which is, of course, what ended up happening in 2012. 
So the program I was enrolled in is called which on the surface seems to be a program which is entirely about teaching Chinese as a second language, but in practice turned out to be more about linguistics and then a little bit of pedagogy tacked onto that. Now, I'm very interested in linguistics, so I didn't really mind that, I think it was a good mix for me, but I also had a lot of teaching practice and a teacher's education from Sweden, so I didn't really enroll in this program to learn how to teach the language as such, the basic pedagogy and things like that, but more to learn the linguistics and the theory I needed to be able to teach well. But the main reason I enrolled in this program was actually to further my own Chinese and make sure it was on a level where I could use it professionally. So when I enrolled in the program, I had studied Chinese for five years, whereof three were full-time. I had also spent a substantial amount of time preparing for this particular program, because if you listen to last part in this episode series, I did say that I picked some textbooks and some learning materials that was used in a program for teaching Chinese as a second language, so I had actually studied some of the textbooks in advance, or at least was familiar with vocabulary and terminology for the subjects that I would study. So what courses did I study then? Well, let's have a quick look. If you're studying full-time in a master's program in Taiwan, you're usually studying three courses per semester, so there's only a total of 12 for my two years. So I studied Chinese linguistics, second language acquisition, studies in phonetic instruction in Chinese, special topics on Chinese phonetics, Chinese acoustic phonetics, Chinese pronunciation and oral expression, syntactic structures of Chinese, Chinese language teaching methods and materials, Chinese teaching practicum, material compilation and analysis, language culture and cognition, research methodology, and then actually two extra courses called Advanced Chinese 1 and Advanced Chinese 2, which were compulsory for any foreign students enrolled in graduate programs, not just the one I was enrolled in. So as you might have noticed, there were a lot of pronunciation and phonetics courses in there, and that's because there are two categories of courses. One is compulsory, and those were the ones about teaching methodology and so on. We had to take those. We also had to take courses in Chinese linguistics and also in research methodology. All the other courses were elective, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's listened to the podcast for a while that I chose as much pronunciation and phonetics as I could. Now obviously I can't share everything I learned in two years in this program, but I will try to highlight some important things. So insight number one is that academic courses are great for instrumental learning, and instrumental learning here means that you're learning in order to achieve something else, not just because you want to learn the language or because you like it or something like that. I should maybe point out that this program is designed for native speakers, so there are very few courses which are about your own Chinese. You're kind of expected to know Chinese before you enter the program. And once you're in the program, you're using your Chinese to understand things about a topic you're interested in or to express things about this topic, not merely because you want to learn the language. And this makes a difference for motivation, if nothing else. It's also rather refreshing to learn Chinese in a formal context like this, where learning the language or increasing your proficiency is not actually the goal. That is something that will come automatically by learning about other things. And this is a much more natural way of learning the language than, say, studying grammar or vocabulary explicitly. Personally, I found this to be a great boost to my motivation, and I really enjoyed learning Chinese in order to be able to talk about these topics with my classmates and to express myself in oral presentations and even on exams. This leads me to the second insight, which is that beyond communication, the responsibility is entirely your own. 
And this is something I bring up often on the podcast, that you are the one learning and it's your responsibility. But when you are in a program like this, nobody really cares about your ability to express yourself in Chinese as long as you can make yourself understood. So if you make a mistake with a tone or you write something slightly incorrectly, nobody will say anything. At least not if you haven't asked them explicitly to do so. So for example, in an oral presentation about grammatical gender in different languages, no one will really care if you mix up your second and third tones, as long as they can understand what you say and as long as you can tell them about the contents of the chapter that you are responsible for. Or if you're writing a report about different techniques for correcting pronunciation and what the research says about these, then you can't really count on your teacher to give you feedback on your Chinese, provided again that your text is legible and easy to understand and so on. Because in the syllabus it says that students are supposed to learn about these techniques, this research and so on, but it doesn't say that you're supposed to do so in perfectly correct Mandarin and that improving your Mandarin is a point here. Well, of course, for any foreigner in the program, this is something that is important and that you need to work on, but that's something you need to do on your own, because most teachers simply don't care or don't have time to help you with these things. Although again, as I mentioned before, if you ask people to provide you feedback and you convince them that you really do care about your Chinese and want to improve, many people will still help you with that. But it's not something you can just count on. And this is true not just in a grad school program, this is true for everyday language and for other contexts too. Insight number three is that having Chinese-speaking classmates is awesome. And this shouldn't come as a surprise, but if your goal is to improve your own Chinese, being in an academic setting where everybody else speaks Chinese and almost all of them are native speakers is very good. You are immersed in an environment where people talk about these things every day and where everybody's interested in the same things as you are and everybody's willing to talk to you about them too. That's an advantage with being in a minority here as a foreigner, because they have some things that I don't, they obviously know Chinese much better than I do, but on the other hand, I've learned Chinese as an adult, so I know much more about what it's like to be the person that we aim to teach here. Naturally, you also get to know some classmates rather well, and you can hang out with them after school as well. On to insight number four, which is that some topics, such as grammar, can be much more interesting than you think. I'm going to use grammar as an example here because I think lots of people have weird notions when it comes to Chinese grammar. Some people think that Chinese doesn't have grammar and that is obviously nonsense. I mean, it would just be a word soup if it didn't have grammar, so of course it does. But I still think that many people think of Chinese grammar as consisting of sentence patterns, which is a bit strange when you compare it to, say, the grammar of French or Spanish, which seems to be all about tenses and inflections and things like that. It is true that Chinese doesn't have most of the things that make up the grammar lessons if you have taken, say, high school Spanish or something like that, but that doesn't mean that Chinese doesn't have any interesting grammar. So just to bring up one example, we don't have articles in Chinese, so in English, for example, we can make a difference between a car and the car, but in Chinese, of course, we don't have any articles, so you can't do it this way. But this doesn't mean that this information is just absent in Chinese. Instead, things like word order determines this. So things that appear early in a sentence are usually things that are given or known already by the listener, whereas things that appear later in the sentence are usually new. That's the information you want to convey to the listener. So to bring up a very simple example, we have the sentence Zhen lai le and lai le zhen, which both means that some person has arrived. So what's the difference here then? Well, if we look at the word order, we can see that in one of them, Zhen lai le, 
Jeune appears early in the sentence, which means that it's given information, and probably the listener knows that there is this person in advance. It's not just a random person and an unexpected event, but rather something known. This is similar to the definite article in English, so if I say the man did something, I expect the listener to know who the man is, otherwise I would say a man did something, or in express it in some other way. And if we look at the other example then, which was Laila Jen, then we can see that Jen is at the end of the sentence, so this person is not really expected, it is a new information that the sentence was meant to convey. And like I said, this is more akin to how we use indefinite article in English. Now, this is not something that is easily taught or easily understood, and sometimes this type of principle or underlying pattern can lead you astray as well, you can't just blindly apply it. But I found that taking courses in Chinese grammar discussing things like this, not just sentence patterns but the underlying principles, really, really helped me to understand the difference between many things that I thought were kind of the same before or didn't really have a way of explaining why they were different. This can also be helpful as a teacher, because while a sentence might sound correct if you translate it directly to English, it might still be weird in Chinese because information structure is not identical. Okay, let's get out of that rabbit hole before we go in too deep and move on to insight number five, which is that true interest conquers all. And this was seen in several ways during my two years in this graduate's program. First, of course, I was very interested in the subject matter, which I've already talked about. But I also did other things, such as extracurricular activities, that I was also very interested in. During these two years, I also practiced gymnastics rather seriously, uh, maybe 10 to 15 hours a week, and we also competed twice, on an amateur level, of course. Now, this is not the Hacking Gymnastics podcast, so I won't talk too much about that, but I will talk about the importance of having other activities where you engage with native speakers. And one very good example of this is practicing sports, which we of course talked about in episode 138. This is actually a little bit similar to studying linguistics with native speakers, because even though superficially it seems to be about the language, and of course it is about the language, but it's not about your language, it's not about your proficiency. And in the same manner, practicing gymnastics or swimming or football or anything else with native speakers means you are in a context where your language is not the main focus of what's going on. And that is all too common when you study the language in a language program or in a language school or something like that. But when you practice, say, sports or engage in other hobbies, nobody really cares about your Chinese, well, except that they want to be able to communicate with you, of course, but you are not there to learn Chinese and they are not there to teach you Chinese, and this means that you can form other types of relationships than you can in a classroom. And since you have a common focus, it also means that you have a reason to hang out with these people, even outside of these activities. For example, we usually practiced in the evenings, which meant that apart from practicing for a few hours, we then also usually went out to have dinner together and then talked about all sorts of things, actually including the gymnastics we practiced, but also lots of other things. You can of course achieve this kind of social environment without practicing sports or engaging in a hobby, but for introverted people like me, having a common goal or a common focus is very helpful. So those were five insights from my two years in this graduate program. And of course, beyond this, I also did improve my Chinese immensely. But of course, it's notoriously difficult to quantify language proficiency, but I can at least illustrate with an example. So when it comes to oral presentations, this is obviously something I had had many times throughout my Chinese learning journey, in class, in various courses, and so on. 
The normal way to do this, and this is something I see with my students now a lot too, of course, is that you prepare a lot, you create a presentation, you have a PowerPoint, maybe you have a script, you get some feedback on the script, you can practice the oral presentation and so on. If you really care about your grades, you might even memorize the entire presentation to make sure you don't make grammar mistakes or use the wrong words or anything. This method can of course take you very far, especially in an academic setting, which is usually based on written exams and oral presentations that are prepared, and they don't really check your oral proficiency that often. However, in a master's program like this, you can't do this, it simply doesn't work. If your teacher says that we have a three-hour seminar and you are responsible for talking about grammatical gender, and this was a real example, that's why I brought it up twice, you can't just prepare a one-hour lecture and then some discussion points and make sure you've prepared your language in advance. You have to prepare the content and then improvise the rest. That's the only way you can do it. Obviously, you can still practice a lot, but you cannot memorize verbatim what you're going to say. I felt that this was very scary at the beginning of this program. I felt that I needed to prepare everything, I needed to have everything on my PowerPoint, and I needed to make sure that I said everything correctly so that people understood me when I talked about these more complex topics. But when the structure is such that you can't do that, it's also somewhat liberating because you cannot prepare in that way and so you have to trust your own ability to express yourself. So I went from being scared of this type of presentation and needing to prepare for hours to being able to do this on the fly and being okay with it. Meaning that as long as I know the content well and I have some kind of structure, I can talk freely about the topics that I'm talking about, rather than trying to prepare the actual words and sentences I will use. This has of course turned out to be absolutely essential for the work that I do now, which involves professional development for Chinese teachers, where I am the person who is responsible for the course and since everything is in Chinese, preparing everything I want to say in advance simply isn't feasible. Working with Chinese language education has been the main focus for me now for almost nine years, but that of course is the topic of the next installment in this series. Thank you for tuning in to the Hacking Chinese podcast. If you like this episode, please share it. More information and inspiration about learning and teaching Chinese can be found at hackingchinese.com. See you in the next episode, and until then, good luck with your studies!